we're so used to seeing things that, in my opinion, aren't quite right in our treatment of animals. You know, the less we eat, the less violence is being done, and the less destruction to the environment. Everyone eats, and everyone has to make a moral decision every time that we sit down to the table. Due to technical difficulties, the following Animal Voices show will be airing live Friday, June 26, as opposed to its originally planned air date of June 19, 2020. Thank you very much and sorry for the inconvenience. Welcome to Animal Voices, Western Canada's only radio program dedicated to animal advocacy and compassionate living. This is 100.5 FM CFRO Vancouver Co-op Radio in Vancouver, BC, Canada on unceded traditional Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil territories. Today is Friday, June 19th, 2020, and I'm your host, Leah Thompson. Thank you for joining me today. Our first guest is Camille Labchuk, lawyer and executive director of Animal Justice, a group of lawyers who pass strong new animal protection legislation, push for the prosecution of animal abusers, and fight for animals in court. Our next guest is Jasmine Leva, director of the film The Invisible Vegan, a 90-minute independent documentary that explores the problem of unhealthy diet patterns in the African-American community, foregrounding the health and wellness possibilities enabled by plant-based vegan diets and lifestyle choices. We will also be having a rerun of an interview from our co-host, Elise, back in December of 2017 with friend of the show and activist Christopher Sebastian McJetters. So those interviews will be coming up soon, so stay tuned. I'm joined here today with my co-host, Grace Wampold. Hi! Today we're going to be talking about a few of the direct action events that had happened over the course of the past week in our city. At the end of last week, on Sunday, there began in the morning an occupation of the viaducts and folks were asking that the demands of Black Lives Matter Vancouver were fulfilled. And simultaneously, there was also a rally happening at um, Namagan's Tent City, which was in Crab Park at the top of Main Street. The viaduct was built on the back of the destruction of Hogan's Alley, which was a historically black neighborhood. So in both cases, people were advocating for remembering the history and bringing attention to those communities and how they are still underserved and harmed by the city as well as, you know, the police. It's important to understand the history of these things when you consider that with Hogan's Alley, people were marginalized and pushed into a specific part of the town because they look a specific way. And then suddenly, Vancouver said, actually, even though, you know, you've been marginalized already so much, we're going to take this land back from you. And that's continuing again to this day. And the fact that this protest occurred to remind us that it's injustice that's going on. Yeah. Today also happens to be Juneteenth. Juneteenth is the oldest nationally celebrated commemoration of the ending of slavery in the United States. This holiday dates back to 1865, when on June 19th, the Union soldiers landed in Galveston, Texas, with news that the war had ended and that the enslaved people were now free. Note that this was two and a half years after President Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, which had become official on January 1st of 1863. It's important for us to recognize this holiday and its history because many of us, especially those who were raised in the United States in a place where we should have known about this history, it was not taught to us. We were told that after Lincoln signed the Emancipation, that everybody was free and 
that was the end of it, but really that wasn't the case. So like me, you might be wondering how you can celebrate Juneteenth. What is it an appropriate thing for you to do? The first thing, like I mentioned earlier, you can share the history of Juneteenth. All of the information that I shared is from the website juneteenth.com slash history.htm. So you can find that as well and share that with your friends and your family. And additionally, you can go out and purchase uh, anything, purchase goods from a black business or donate funds to people who are needing to bail funds for folks who have been protesting in, in the United States for their um, freedoms. Things are quite different in Canada. We do not have bail fund. However, there are still um, funds available, like Grace had mentioned earlier. There is a black therapy fund right now, uh, which is being sponsored by the Newsy Collective to support black folks in Vancouver who do not have access to therapy. And there's also fundraisers for the two black femmes who were arrested at the viaduct earlier this week. So please consider donating to those things. That's a great way to celebrate Juneteenth and support the black people in your life um, and in our community. We find this important to bring up in our show, even though it's about non-human animal advocacy and rights, because we are a show that recognizes um, that humans as well are oppressed. And this history is important for us to share, regardless of, you know, the exact topic of our show. So tell everyone you know about this holiday. And there is actually going to be a march in Vancouver um, today on Juneteenth. It's going to start at 4 p.m. at Jack Poole Plaza. And at 4.30, the march will start and it will go down Thurlow Street and end at Sunset Beach Park. So um, if you're able to, uh, please bring a mask and bring your friends and they will do the best, you know, keep keep everybody safe and socially distance as best as possible and um, really show up for the black community in our city and, you know, listen to the demands that they have um, and be in solidarity with them. I think it's important that as many people show up to this march as possible. And after that, consider how they can help outside of these single actions. Um, where March is occurring, but it's also important to remember that this is the day-to-day lives of a lot of people in our community, that we have Indigenous community leaders who are successfully maintaining the peace and maintaining a sense of healing, like allowing for a space of healing and a sense of community. So if you have mm-hmm. the opportunity to donate, there is a Black therapy fund um, going around. And for people who are arrested, you know, get involved and repost things. Yeah, even if you're not able to um, participate, you know, sharing things on social media if you're active in that way. Sharing with your community um, and your circle is very important. I will now be playing a new song that was released by a wonderful musician, No Name, who is very much so involved in her community and has a book club called No Name's Book Club. You can support them on Patreon and they have meetups where they talk about different radical texts, mostly from black folks. So definitely check her out, and I hope you enjoy the song. It's called Song 33. Oh, I have ambitions, dreams, but dreams don't come cheap. I saw a demon on my shoulders, looking like patriarchy, like scrubbing blood off the ceiling and bleaching another carpet. How my house go on it? Why toy and body don't embody all the life she wanted? The baby just 19. I know I dream all black. I seen that everything immortalized in tweets, all caps. They said they found her dead. One girl missing, another one go missing. One girl missing. 
ass and another But niggas in the back quiet as a church mouse Basement studio when duty calls to get the verse out I guess the ego hurt now It's time to go to work, wow, look at him go He really doubts to write about me when the world is in smokes When it's people in trees When George was begging for his mother saying he couldn't breathe He thought to write about me One girl missing, another one go missing One girl missing, another one Yo, but little did I know all my reading would be about There is trans women being murdered And this is all he can offer And this is all y'all receive Distract you from the convo with organizers They talking abolishing the police And this is a new world order We democratizing Amazon We find down borders This is a new vanguard This is a new vanguard I'm the new vanguard This is your big chance, so don't blow it We're here to present the cutting-edge radio you want to hear. What about a program featuring just local Vancouver bands? No market for that. We have an expert on gospel music. No. Our public affairs programs dig deep with voices other stations won't touch. No. Programs with First Nations hosts? Sorry, no market for that. We've got a lot of shows in other languages for people all over the world. Folk music? (laughs) You're kidding, right? Who would sponsor that? Can't make big bucks with programs people want to hear? You have to go to Co-op Radio for that. Community-owned radio. Now at 100.5 FM. The switch is on. Grace has a little bit of news to share with all of us. You know, this is kind of a side note, actually, but I just got news that the Very Good Butcher Company, which is uh, based out of Victoria, has now gone public. And there you can buy stock in the Very Good Butcher, which is something that I actually might consider doing as far as like putting towards a brand that you that's like local and supporting a company that has, you know, a positive cause and a pretty clear goal to and animal suffering and live more compassionately. So check that out. Thanks for sharing. No problem. And you said that they, do they sell their stuff all over the place or just locally? So they're based out of uh, Victoria, but you can buy very good butchers uh, products at a lot of different grocery stores in Vancouver as well in the mainland. They come like both frozen and they have like a line of sliced like vegan deli meats. Um, I know I've seen them at obviously the vegan supply, but I've also seen them at places like Safeway and at Whole Foods and other and specialty grocery stores in the Vancouver area. Yeah. Well, thank you. That's great news. Our first guest today is Camille Labchuk, one of Canada's leading animal rights lawyers who has worked to protect animals for over a decade. As a lawyer, Camille seeks out cases that enhance the legal interests of animals, expose hidden animal suffering, and result in meaningful policy changes. As an advocate, Camille's work includes documenting the commercial seal killing on Canada's East Coast, exposing cruelty in farming, protecting the free speech rights of animal advocates, and campaigns against trophy hunting, circuses, zoos, aquariums, shark finning, puppy mills, and more. Camille is a graduate of the University of Toronto Faculty of Law and Mount Allison University. She is a frequent lecturer and media commenter on animal law issues. She will be joining us today to provide updates on the Ontario Bill 156, which was signed into law this past Wednesday on June 17th. So this Bill 156, Security from Trespass and Protecting Food Safety Act, is what is commonly known as ag-gag legislation that restricts people's ability to expose animal cruelty on farms. 
This new law will make it illegal for employee whistleblowers to seek out and expose animal abuse on farms, violations of workplace safety laws, and fil filthy conditions that could breed pathogens and threaten public health. Thank you for being on the show with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure to join, Leah. Thanks for having me. Of course. Could you please tell us more about what this law will mean for animal advocates who bear witness to non-human animals on farms or in slaughterhouses? Yes, unfortunately, it's been a very dark week in Ontario with the passage of Bill 156. As you mentioned, this is what's known as an egg gag bill. And egg gag laws have a long history in the United States. Uh, they've been passed in many states there since the 90s. And they're usually passed in response to undercover exposés revealing horrific cruelty on animal farms. Um, in Canada, the situation was similar. Um, farmers started lobbying for egg gag laws after occupations like Meet the Victims in British Columbia, like a Turkey Barn occupation in Alberta and like other ones in Ontario. And the government communicates about egg gig laws and says it's about trespassing and deterring people from trespassing. But that's not true because what they've really done is put provisions in there designed to target undercover exposés, which are quite different. So that would be when someone gets a job on a farm for the purpose of exposing cruelty if they see it. Um, Ontario's bill is also insidious because it stops people from engaging in save movement style vigils and bearing witness to animals in their final moments of sl uh, before slaughter outside the slaughterhouse. And um, those vigils can be very powerful both for the person who participates and for somebody who sees video footage shot of animals inside those trucks suffering before they're killed. So this bill would shut down people who want to do exposés and it interferes with the rights of people to participate in vigils. Thank you for that. Um, what are some steps moving forward that we can make in order to denounce this law and assert our charter protected rights of protest? Well, at this point, we believe that Ontario's egg gag bill is unconstitutional. We believe it violates the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, specifically the protections for people's free expression. So everyone in this country has the right to express themselves. That includes the right to gather information. And people also have the right to receive information. So as consumers, people are entitled to know and have the right to know about the products that they may or may not be buying. So animal justice intends to challenge this bill in court. In the United States, where similar egg gag bills have been passed, many of them have already been struck down in court, including in Iowa, uh, Idaho, Utah, North Carolina, and Kansas. So we are hoping that the same thing will happen in Ontario, and we're preparing a legal challenge. Um, at this point, it's difficult for the public to do much to stop the bill because it has now passed, but one way that people can still get involved is by supporting that legal challenge. So we'd be very appreciative of any donations that anyone would like to, to make. Litigation can be costly and expensive, but we believe that the stakes are too high to leave these laws on the books. Great, thank you. Is there anything else you wanted to add about things we should know about the bill? Uh, I will add one more thing, just that Alberta did pass an egg gag law previously in uh, late November last year with only 10 days of debate in the legislature and almost no media exposure. So this is now the second egg gag bill. We've also got British Columbia, Manitoba, Quebec, and potentially even the federal level considering legislation that would shut down free speech. So I just want to encourage everyone to stay vigilant, look for ways you can get involved if you're in one of these provinces, and we'll of course do our best to keep people posted on what happens. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you again for joining us. And could you please let our listeners know where we can find you on social media and stay connected with updates on this issue and others? Absolutely. So on Twitter, I'm Camille Labchuk, C-A-M-I-L-L-E-L-A-B-C-H-U-K. Same thing on Instagram. You can add me on Facebook. And Animal Justice has our own social accounts too. You can just search for Animal Justice and you should find us. Great. Thank you very much. Thanks, Leah. Now we'll leave you with the song, No One. Written and performed by vegan reggae musician Kush featuring Kenna King.
The interviews will be coming up soon, so stay tuned.
The Invisible Vegan is a 90-minute independent documentary that explores the problem of unhealthy dietary patterns in the African-American community, foregrounding the health and wellness possibilities engaged by plant-based vegan diets and lifestyle choices. The documentary begins with personal story of our featured guest today, Jasmine Leva, a 30-year-old black actress and filmmaker currently based in Los Angeles. Over the past seven years, Leva has committed herself to veganism, both in life, style, and research. Hi, Jasmine. Welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. As I mentioned in the introduction, you are the filmmaker behind the groundbreaking film, The Invisible Vegan. Would you like to start us off by telling us a little bit about the film? The way that I put my film together, I thought about every single excuse I heard for why people don't want to go vegan. You know, guys, oh, that's a, a girl thing. You know, my black friends, oh, that's a white thing, or that's the elitist thing, or that's a Hollywood thing. Um, People saying, oh, I don't want to give up soul food. I don't want to give up cheese. Or not knowing the damage that eating that way indirectly has on communities of color. Not knowing the damage that eating that way has on the environment. Not knowing the suffering that all these innocent, sentient beings are experiencing just so we can have 20 minutes when we're eating a burger that not only do we not need, but is causing poor health for us and members of our community. So I created my film to kind of speak to all those things. And when I was first putting it together, I'm like, okay, how do I do this in an organized way? And I broke the film down in chapters. Like it's almost like a book with 10 different chapters speaking to 10 different things, even down to some of the details I feel like people would be afraid to talk about. Like in the film, I talk about as a woman, uh, TMI alert. You know, I used to have problems with yeast infections. I used to have a pro- I used to have problems with hemorrhoids, like all of these things, acne. So I really had to put myself out there too, because when I went vegan, a lot of those things kind of cleared up and that was an unexpected side effect. So there might be people battling with those things and they hear me say that and they go like, oh, maybe I should try that. But if we don't talk about those things, if we're scared to talk about our hemorrhoids, like other people who might, that might be the, the thing that gets them on veganism but they won't, you know, they won't get there if we're scared to talk about it. So it was important for me to actually just, you know, put my business all on Front Street for this film. (laughs) Well, hopefully it worked. Hopefully it did work for some people. Would you please tell us what inspired you to make this film and what the process was like for you? Oh, okay. So many things. So when I first went vegan, I tried to get all my friends um, kind of on board with veganism, but they just, they, they didn't see the light. So then I started looking at a lot of the um, vegan media that got me inspired. And I thought, wait, hold on. I know it's missing. We're missing. Like out of all the documentaries, you know, Cowspiracy, Food Inc., Vegucated, I love them all. But as a collective, I felt like they fail to really put people of color, give us any kind of spotlight. Most of the experts, if there was a black person, it was kind of more so at a token capacity. And I felt like that was the reason why a lot of people in my community were missing the message. So I I almost just wanted to be the change that I wanted to see in the world. And as far as putting the documentary together, doing a low budget documentary, ultra low budget is about $1,000 a minute. So my documentary is around 90 minutes. So you got to think, okay, if you want to do a documentary, I need an extra $100,000, which I didn't have at the time. But I just said, you know what? Screw it. Let me just use my debit card, my credit card. I will figure it out as I go. And then on the back end, I did a crowdfunder and, you know, everybody kind of pitched in and helped me pay for all the footage. And, and that's how we got The Invisible Vegan. 
Wow, that's incredible. I had no idea it cost that much money to put together a documentary. Mm-hmm. Because when you see all of the, you know, all of the different photos and clips, video clips in a documentary, each one of those costs money. The photos of uh, Martin Luther King and Coretta Scott King, I believe those cost somewhere around like $300, $400 per picture. And that's just the flash, the photo for three seconds. Wow. Would you tell us more about who you had in the film? How did you go about finding who to get in the film? Were they all people you had like personal connections with before? No, no. Um, there were a few people that I knew personally, like Xavier from Soulful, Seattle, CC from um, Impossible Foods. They were already my friends, but everyone else, I just did my research and I knew I wanted to hit of veganism from a bunch of different avenues. So I just went online and kind of saw like, oh, this person is really good with racial theory. This person is a food scholar. This person is good with urban gardening. So just people to speak to different aspects of the movement. Yeah, that's cool. Since the film came out, how has it been received by different communities? So, oh my gosh, the reception has been so great. And when I first made the film, you know, I geared it toward the black demographic. Not to say that other people, I didn't think other people would enjoy it, but I thought, you know, might not be their cup of tea, who knows? But what I found is everybody can relate to it. I have, you know, brown people are like, well, a lot of the things that you're saying about your culture kind of parallels in our culture. You have a lot of white people who watch it and they're just like, yo, you actually taught me about things that I didn't think about within my own vegan practice. And with everything that's happening now, I think there's this um, kind of push for people to be more inclusive. So a lot of people are checking out the doc now, like my Instagram numbers are going up and people are reaching out. So yeah, it's being received very well. Great. What I loved about your film was how you brought history and social context into what it means to be a black woman advocating for plant-based eating and veganism. You also mentioned this in the talk that you gave at the United Poultry Concerns Conscious Eating Conference when you spoke about the history of the stereotype between black people and fried chicken. Would you explain to our audience what you mean by being aware of social context and how it plays out as such an important part of your activism? So when you are asking someone to give something up, I think, you know, say you are, you're not a member of the black community and you're asking someone else to give up fried chicken. To you, you know, you might not have any kind of personal connection with the food. So you're just thinking like, I'm just asking someone to give up this frivolous thing or I am vilifying like, oh, that's awful. You shouldn't eat that. That's terrible. But you also have to remember, okay, different cultures of people have different kind of psychological links to things too. And so when I went back and looked at the history between my people and chicken, it's like not only was that a comfort food, but it was also a food that was that kept well and helped sustain, you know, my people as they're like as they're working on the plantations. It was a food that almost, I guess, saved their life, if you will. It was a food that black women were able to peddle so they could get economic footing at a time when there weren't many jobs for people who had just got out of slavery. So there's history there. So before you go in telling people which parts of their culture they need to take out, you need to make sure that you know you're asking someone not just to give up a, a piece of food, but you're asking them to give up um, a part of their culture. And, and not to say that you shouldn't ask that question, but there's a different way that you would frame the ask. Thank you. I guess let's talk a bit more about your interest in filmmaking. Were your films always centered on social justice and activism, or is that something that has grown uh, as you've done it for longer? 
So I started out working on other shows and most of the, but I wasn't, you know, they weren't independent projects. It was something where either I was just brought in as a writer or an associate producer, story producer or something. And they were always positive uh, projects, you know, something like maybe it would cover the life of some musician that didn't get just due. So it was always something I could be proud of. But then in my work, when I started making my own projects, I delved deeper into I guess the social justice um, aspect. So for this, it was, you know, animal rights, food security. For another project that I'm working on, it's eating disorders in communities of color, which is not something you hear talked about. And the theatrical film I did revolves around the main character. She has a disability and kind of breaking the link between people who have disabilities or exceptionalities and victimhood. And, you know, putting them in a place where it's like, no, this is, we're all about inclusion. That's not just a black thing. That's not just the LGBTQ thing. Like I want to take it on all levels and really give voices to the people that are voiceless. And then my follow-up project is kind of the same thing. I want to do a follow-up to the invisible vegan, but cover people in the prison system. Just the food system um, within the prison industrial complex and not necessarily saying like they should all prisons should make uh, all prisons should go vegan but the prisoners should have a right you know to eat a healthy plant-based meal because a lot of them they're going in prison and they're getting degenerative diseases once they get into prison or they're eating foods where there's you know maggots in the food or the food is cold and that and to me that's cruel you know just because someone's made mistakes in their lives and a lot of people that are in jail haven't made like super bad mistakes you know but to treat someone like that is just um not something i support yeah well that sounds like a really interesting project that sounds great Thank you. You are listening to Animal Voices on Vancouver's Co-op Radio, 100.5 FM CFRO. 100% listener-sponsored radio broadcasting live from the east side on unceded Coast Salish territories. So how is filmmaking and other art forms essential in our movements for social justice and wellness. How have you seen your films inspire others to be activists and create their own art? Well, because people don't realize the power that, you know, music, the type of music you listen to and the chance that you're listening to, like that's going into your psyche. When someone watches a film, you know, they have to, usually they're sitting somewhere quiet where they're just taking in a lot of the information. And then the people you have in these films are people that a huge part of the population look up to. So you literally have all these role models kind of pushing a message and you have people in a state where they're more receptive to the message. So filmmaking, I don't, and I wouldn't say like filmmaking is more important than what a politician does or, you know, someone who runs a nonprofit, not at all. But I think it's a great complimentary device for that person who might not want to sit and listen to a politician for an hour and a half, but they can watch my film where I'm like throwing jokes and stuff in there and making it palatable for a different audience. Can you tell us more about the projects you've been working on since the release of The Invisible Vegan and how we can support you in those projects? Okay, okay. Well, if you want to support, because I am doing everything grassroots, I have a Patreon page um, and it's The Invisible Vegan. So if you want to kind of contribute, you can go to that site and help 
with my next big project, which is going to be the follow-up to The Invisible Vegan, working title, Food Corrections, where I talk about um, food in the prison system. The film I was telling you about where that centers on kind of disability and not making that a thing of victimhood. Um, that's a theatrical film called Athea. It's a short film. It was going to go through the film festival circuit this year, but good old COVID-19 came and just wiped out all the, <laughs> the festivals. So I'm working on that. And then the piece about More Than One Face, which is a documentary about women of color who battle with eating disorders. Great. So I also saw on social media that you have been documenting the protests in L.A. And I wanted to ask you about your experience doing that and how has that been for you and how is that kind of filmmaking different and what you have been doing in the past? And do you have any plans for that footage? Wow, it was actually soul cleansing because there were people rioting right outside of my home. And I was getting on Twitter and I was seeing all these you know, people looting and rioting and hearing sirens all day long, hearing five helicopters, I had so much anxiety and I didn't even know how to react on top of, you know, just seeing the video of George Floyd, just having this happen for the, what, millionth time? I don't know. I really had a moment where I'm just like, okay, how do I want to participate in this movement in a productive way? And I just thought about it. I'm like, Jasmine, your, your film You've always loved being a filmmaker. That's your voice, you know, use your voice. So when I went out there, I got something completely different than what I expected. Um, what I saw was beautiful. Like the looters and rioting, that is something separate. And that is a very small percentage of what's going, going on in the streets for real. What I saw was thousands of people, you know, loving each other and standing up for each other and remembering that we're all human and we're in this together. And even though there's a global pandemic literally killing people, I have my white, my Hispanic, my Armenian, my Asian brothers and sisters like, so what? We don't care. We're out here fighting for you guys. And I love that I was able to get that on film. And I just shared it on my social networks just to show people like there is more to this than the narrow um, negative picture you might be getting from whatever news outlet you follow. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you for doing that. You know, being able to document that and spread that is really important. Is there anything else that you want to talk about the film, about your work? Since we're in the Black Lives Matter situation, I do want to speak to that. I just want people to know that, you know, especially me as someone who wants to create a more compassionate society, you know, now when I kind of rep Black Lives Matter, that's not me saying like, I don't care about the welfare of animals at this moment. No, not at all. But that is me recognizing that in order for us to get to a place where more people are even receptive of the animal rights message, they have to feel like their own homes are in order. They have to feel like their own children are safe. Otherwise, they're not going to care about the safety of a chicken if they are scared that their son might go out and get shot. So I would really, you know, love it to have everybody kind of like, like, let's all rally around this so this doesn't happen to us anymore. We don't see any more Latin American children in cages. You know, let's Let's start there, not to say forget the animals, but to say like, okay, well, in order for people to pay attention to the animals, we might have to put some of our resources into human rights as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I really want to, you know, continue interviewing all kinds of people who come from all walks of life and who can speak to veganism in different ways, you know, because it's so important. We just don't have the same story over and over. 
Thank you again for being on our show. Can you let us know uh, how we can support you moving forward, social media pages? Okay, great, great. As I mentioned earlier, if you want to support the journey, we have a Patreon page um, for The Invisible Vegan. You can follow on Instagram or Facebook, The Invisible Vegan. Um, I'm on Twitter, but just as Invisible Vegan without the the, someone took The Invisible Vegan. (laughs) So yeah, that's how you can follow and support. Okay, great. Thank you. So our featured guest today is writer and activist Christopher Sebastian McJedders, a longtime vegan and social justice advocate. Sorry, Sebastian is a staff writer at Vegan Publishers, a part-time lecturer on speciesism at Columbia University, and a board member of Peace Advocacy Network. He focuses on examining the complex relationships between violence against animals, environmental racism, classism, and capitalism. Hello, Sebastian, and welcome to Animal Voices. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. Cool. So first of all, I'd love to hear about your personal journey to veganism and to social justice activism and kind of when and how you realized that all of these issues were connected. Oh, wow. This is actually a really fun story that I just got through telling a few hours ago. So, um, so, so yeah, I get to tell it all over again um, <laughs> for my friends on the radio now. Thank you for that opportunity. But yeah, like someone had just... Um, asked me about my personal journey into veganism and my journey is kind of old um or it's, it's old for me like there are some definitely some older vegans out there but i've been vegan for like 14 years now i think that it was around 2004 early in the year i was refer- re- returning from a work trip um in las vegas and i had a layover on my way back to philadelphia in phoenix and in the airport i saw what i thought was a diet book and I picked up Skinny Bitch, mm. and, um, and I read it on the plane, and I was absolutely shook. Like, by the time I landed in Philadelphia, I was definitely vegan, or wow. I was on my way to vegan, because I absolutely had, like, some slip-ups in the first couple of months. But in 2004, like, there just wasn't an online community for people to, like, you know, for, for, for people to connect, or at least I wasn't aware of the online community. I was just vegan in Philadelphia all by myself. Wow. And, um, yeah, like, so, so I didn't have videos. I didn't, like, you know, I didn't have a lot of online support, but I had, like, a thousand copies of that book that I bought, and I passed out to everybody because, <laughs> as we all do, you know, in my early days, I just assumed that as soon as everybody finds out like, you know, what I just found out, then everybody's going to be vegan along with me. And, of course, that wasn't the case at all. No. <laughs> like, three months into veganism, I was like, oh, my God, the entire world sucks. Everybody oh. is terrible. <laughs> and I'm just going to burn it all down. So, so yeah. But, um, you know, and it's like the, the part of the reason why this story is for me really, um, you know, like, it, it, it's really personal and, and speaks a lot to my journey into social social justice and social activism for all marginalized communities is because like, you know, since that time, like with the benefit of hindsight, as with so many things, like, you know, I realized a lot of the, the things that were like, like that, that were troubling or that I should have found troubling or should have found to be alarm bells about that book and the style that it was written in. Um, because, you know, like it, it doesn't necessarily connect with a lot of people and like, you know, and the type of, feminism that you know that that book encouraged isn't like you know in retrospect the, the like the, the most profound mm-hmm. type of inclusive feminism that I think of now and so like you know over time you know I kind of 
started to be a little like, you know, embarrassed about the fact that that was my entry point into veganism. But I learned to not be ashamed of that because I actually met Carol Adams, who, of course, wrote The Sexual Politics of Meat, um, when I had helped to organize a like a, a conference in um, in the Seattle area in 2015. And so I was telling Carol Adams the story kind of sheepishly because, of course, Carol Adams, you know, she she knows a thing or two about that there feminism, as they say. And, you know, and, you know, and I, I, I remember that she put her hand on my arm and she said in that 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 wise voice that we all hope to acquire someday. She's like, you know, look at where you are now. Um, and that, that gave me so much hope and so much courage and like, you know, and it touched me so deeply because there wasn't any judgment in that. Everybody starts somewhere. And regardless of like, you know, what your entry point into veganism is, we all have so much more to learn and so many more ways that we can grow. And, and yeah, like I had learned so much about, about like not just veganism, but about feminism and like, and I had gotten in touch with my blackness, um, over, over so, so many years of being vegan and, and how important and how connected veganism is to black liberation, um, how important animal liberation is to black liberation. Um, because I didn't just read Carol Adams, but I, I read the work of Breeze Harper. I read the work of Lauren Ornelas and like, and, and all of this, this incredible literature that was being put together by Food Empowerment Project, by the Sister Vegan Project, by all of these incredible organizations and, and individual activists who are out there that made all of these connections. Um, you know, I read, oh, oh God, like Patrice Jones has published endlessly. And, um, and, and I'm a huge, huge fan of hers. And I'm, I'm fortunate enough that I get to work with Patrice at Vine Sanctuary now remotely. And, you know, and, and I've, I've kind of built up this little community of people that have taught me so much and enabled me to take my activism to more radical and more daring places because, um, because now I see like, this isn't just, just about one individual thing. Like, you know, like the vegan veganism alone <clears throat> being that animals are so, so closely tied up in our food system, um, and their exploitation and, and the violence that we do against them, you know, that, that woke me up to the fact that like our food system is, inherently unjust um that the the people who control our food system don't necessarily have our best interests at heart and you know and the way that our food is distributed is incredibly unfair and i think that we the way that we approach veganism the way that we talk about veganism needs to needs to to, to change needs to be updated for the way that we understand how the world works in the 21st century um, we can't ask the same questions that we have been asking about animal exploitation. We, we have to look at the fact that, you know, that, that, that even if, um, as we're so fond of saying, even, even if, like, you know, corporations actually um, don't feed, like, grain and, and use our water resources to, to feed and provide water for animals on factory farms and in slaughterhouses, even if corporations don't do that, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to redirect those resources to poor and underprivileged communities um, in, in, in North America or globally, mm -hmm. um, because that's just not the way that corporations work. It's just not the way that capitalism works. Mm -hmm. um, we still have, to, we, we still have to, to, to make sure that we're continuing that fight to, to free animals from exploitation, but also be really honest 
and you know and 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 really really transparent about what that really means um because yeah like that but that's something that we we often say like you know well well these resources are devoted to like factory farms and and we we need to free up that food in our food system for for other humans and for other animals to eat well that's just not going to automatically happen um there are several steps in between that we need to undertake in order to ensure that um, we also need to learn how to not use animals as like as our foil when insulting other humans. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we see how like how, how black people have been animalized and are currently animalized um, in our societies that are dominated by images of whiteness and of white people. We need to understand like, you know, that the animal exploitation is gendered violence, is a theft of reproductive autonomy. Um, that that animal exploitation is about queer liberation as well. We need to like you know we, we need to broaden our understanding about how these issues are connected, and and why they're connected, and and how like oppression is just this 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 hugely entangled thing with multiple threads, and you can't just undo one. Um, you 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 have to look at how like how how these impact other communities as well. Absolutely. So, yeah, I wanted to ask you a little bit more, actually, about the the connections between black liberation and animal liberation, because you've spoken about this quite a bit, and about um, human as a political identity that has historically been exclusively reserved for white people, specifically heterosexual white males. Um, Can you elaborate a little more on this? Yeah, you know, one of the, the like, uh, there was a speech that I had done, um, and I'm I'm very, like, grateful and very pleased that I was asked to do this, and this was, like, or four years ago um, at the National Animal Rights Day um, in, in New York when, um, when, when everyone had gotten together for that, um, where I was, like, you know, I, I, was, I was doing some research for this speech, and, and one of the things that really stuck out to me is that, like, you know, there, there's, there's this exclusion um, that is written into, like, the, the U.S. Constitution of, like, of, of other marginalized groups. And, you know, and it really struck me that, like, when we talk about you know the 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 rights that are inherent to to human lives in um, in the U.S. Constitution. Like you know, we're we're, we're talking about like all men are created equal, um, as as they say the the very famous quote. Um, but that's not true, um, and and it's never been true. Like you know, when we say that all men are created equal, women were not included in that. Mm-hmm. Um, queer people were not included in that. Like whether they were male, female, or or whatever gender you identify as. Like, you know, people with, like, who are disabled, um, physically disabled, um, like, who, who suffer from emotional trauma, and, like, all of these other groups were not included in that. Um, poor people were not included in that. And especially black people were not included in that. Like, you know, during the time that the Constitution was written, you know, and, and during, like, the early days of the United States history, um, we were considered three-fifths of a person. We were not even considered an actual fully human person. Um, so when, when we talk about all men were created equal, we were talking specifically about white, property-owning, wealthy, heterosexual, cisgender men and nobody else. Mm-hmm. So when I say human as a political identity, like, you know, this was an identity that was reserved for a very specific set of humans. And if you didn't meet these very arbitrary criteria, you were someone or something else that was not human and considered less than um, and inferior to. And um, I noticed that, like, you know, when, 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 the, um, when this, this interview was being linked, you know, there was, there was the, the link was to 
um, one of my talks that I had given in London at the Evolution Festival last year, like one of the ways that like that that this has been demonstrated throughout history is through medical experimentation. Um, black bodies and animal bodies were used in medical experimentation, and that's that's like that's 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 researched very thoroughly in the book Medical Apartheid from 2007, which I reference in the classroom and oftentimes in my lectures, talking about the history of medical um, experimentation on, like, you know, on, on bodies that were not those of white men um, with money. And, like, you know, and it's really scary. You've got, like, the Tuskegee experiments that were done in the 1920s in the United States. You've got the history of Henrietta Lacks, which is the history of cancer research in the 1960s. Um, a black woman who died of cancer and who's, like, you know, whose cells were used for cancer research. And, like, you know, like, she, she died in poverty. Um, her, her family had not until, I think, 2013 even seen a dime of that money um, and had received very little recognition in the decades that had passed since um, her life had ended. Mm. Um, and, and this extends all the way through, like, you know, the, the 1960s and the, uh, up to the 1990s, which is the most recent quote that I, like, you know, I had used in one of my talks. This goes on even to this day where doctors and people in the medical establishment are on record as saying very recently that they had no problems using, using specifically black patients mm. because... We were plentiful. Um, we were dirty, and we were we, we there were, we, we were we were greater in population than even cats. Mm-hmm. So, like the idea of black human persons as experimental animals is like you know that's not something that's not a comparison that that I make up. That's not a comparison that I'm making. That is like just you know an acknowledgement of what living in a white supremacist society has done that you know this is something that has long been established by white people and it creates this binary whereby black people um particularly black people in western society kind of see ourselves as in competition for liberation against other animals and so you hear oftentimes black people saying like you know like why should we give a fuck about animals or white people care more about animals than they do about us and that's where like you know that that's that's where we kind of get messed up because like this isn't a competition oppression thrives in isolation um and and this isn't like you know we we can we can seek solidarity rather than like you know seeking to 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 get a higher rung on the 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 ladder in the oppression olympics so, so yeah, that's that's what I mean by that in a very lengthy and verbose way. No, so that's great. Um, so I, I want to talk to you a little bit also about slaughterhouse workers. I mean, obviously, there's there's quite a bit of awareness of um, how many agricultural workers are you know treated terribly they work in terrible conditions um slaughterhouse workers specifically i find don't tend to get a lot of attention but there are rampant human rights issues in the animal slaughter industry uh so what can you tell us about that yeah like you know one one of the things that's really um really telling that that i had stumbled across and i had also used in my lectures very recently is that like well first of all like let's just establish that like slaughterhouse workers are people who suffer from immense um, emotional trauma, mm-hmm. and um, and and one of the like most often diagnosed conditions is PITS, that's perpetrator-induced traumatic stress. Um, and I had started conducting my research on this, and and you know, and I had also learned that like Food Empowerment Project had already done a tremendous amount of research on this because a lot of the people who work in slaughterhouses are themselves undocumented immigrants, which that community is very like you know very very near and dear to the people who, like, you know, who devote their time to FEP. Um, but, but yeah, like, mo- uh, uh, 
like the, most of the people, or I shouldn't say most of the people, but many of the people who work in slaughterhouses are not our enemies. Um, and we, because we crave a very simple, very straightforward black and white narrative of like who are the good guys and who are the bad guys, it's really easy to characterize the people who work in slaughterhouses as just inherently bad people who get their jollies by killing animals. Mm-hmm. And that's just not the case. Like people are just not hardwired like that. Slaughterhouses are oftentimes set up in economically depressed parts of the country where people have to work there or literally suffer and die because there is no other work. And that's the product of the system. The people who set the system up know that. They know that, like, you know, that that you can't just find another job down the road because there are no jobs available. And sometimes in these communities, there isn't even a road. So, so yeah, like, these people are, like, they're overworked. They're underpaid. Um, They don't get, like, the treatment for physical injuries that they, like, that they oftentimes suffer from. And this emotional trauma manifests itself in a number of ways. And Canada's OHS and statistics that I had taken from 2012, you can see the counties that have slaughterhouses with um, a, a medium like number of employees of 7,500 or more have double the rates of violent crime than counties that do not have slaughterhouses. Mm-hmm. And furthermore, what I had learned in an article that was released in um, February of 2016 is that like Syrian refugees who are fleeing, literally fleeing a war zone um, and who were coming to, to Canada for political asylum were actually offered jobs in slaughterhouses because Canada cannot find people who are willing to do this work. Mm-hmm. And even when faced with the threat of starvation and homelessness, a lot of these people are unable to even last for more than a couple of hours on the job. So, yeah, when I say that this is closely race, closely tied to race and, and class discrimination, that's what this is. Like, we're literally consigning people to a type of traumatic stress that exposes them to substance abuse, to alcohol abuse, to, like, domestic violence, um, to higher rates of violent crime, because it has to manifest itself somehow. And in really severe cases, oftentimes people commit suicide. And we don't realize, you know, that all of this is just down to the fact that, like, we really can't give up our double cheeseburgers. Mm -hmm. So we have to find a better way for ourselves and for each other, and especially for the animals who are the ultimate victims in this, like, torturous system. Absolutely. So, I, you know, I wish we had more time. We're already almost having to wrap up here. But what are some things that we as animal rights activists can do to help make the vegan movement more inclusive and to make veganism and animal rights activism more accessible to marginalized folks? What I would love to see is like a centering of more marginalized voices or more voices that are kind of like floating around on the edges of the animal rights movement. So often when we, like, when we talk to people, we, you know, we, we, and we're, we're citing our favorite activists, the same names come up over and over again. And what you kind of notice is that those names are usually the names of, well, cisgender, like heterosexual white men. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even the prominent voices that, like, you know, that, that you, that are female that, that I think of, they don't even come up in conversations often. There was a poll recently done on social media of, like, your favorite activists. And I'm like, you know, it's shocking and really disappointing to me that Breeze Harper doesn't appear on this, mm-hmm. that like, you know, that Mel- Dr. Melanie Joy doesn't appear on this, that like, you know, that, that Carol, once again, Carol Adams doesn't appear on this list of your favorite activists. Wow. Um, and, like, and it's not that like, you know, it's not that the, the people that we do find to be our favorites are bad people or that they, they don't deserve recognition for their work. Everybody who like is vegan 
alone. Like, you know, you're, you're engaging in an act of political resistance. And I think that that's worth noting because that's such an important thing to just refuse to actually consume and commodify animal bodies. So it's not that they're bad, but it's just that, like, there's such a diversity of voices out there that are not saying the same almost very basic things over and over again. And I think that in order for us to gain credibility and join other social movements um, for, for, for justice, we need to recognize people who are from those movements and, like, you know, and acknowledge them, especially um, if they're vegan. Because like, these are our allies in the fight for social justice, and, and we really need to help them to understand that animals are also a marginalized community um, you know, in, in, a, in the most severe and egregious way. Like, you know, they, they, their lives are marginalized so that they're not even seen as victims. And, you know, and, and the best way to do that is to raise up the voices of people who are from those communities. So, like, yeah, talk about your black vegans. Talk about your, your women vegans. Talk about your queer vegans. And especially talk about your female, queer, and black vegans. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, like, talk about these people that are, are, from, are from marginalized communities. It, it really gives us greater credibility when we're having these conversations. And, you know, it helps people to understand that we, that, that, that we get it. That, that, that we see that like that these, these, these issues are connected and you know and we, there's strength in numbers we're stronger together than we are trying to go about this individually and trying to attack different issues as if they exist in a bubble beautiful yeah again I, I so wish that we had more time unfortunately we're out of time already so we may have to have you back in the future Sebastian to talk about more of these issues oh, but thank you so I much for coming that. on the show today and sharing your insights and knowledge with us Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate that. You've been listening to Animal Voices here on 100.5 FM Vancouver Co-op Radio in so-called Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada on unceded traditional Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh territories. Please join us next Friday for another show with wonderful original content. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram as Animal Voices Vancouver, on Twitter at Animal Voices YVR, and email us at radioanimalvoices at gmail.com. Now we'll leave you with the song. Written and performed by vegan reggae musician Kush, featuring Kenna King. Thank you for listening to Animal Voices, and remember to be kind to the animals. Bye. Uh-huh.
c'est du 